It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Coming up on episode number 86 of the Night Talker, 1045, where are we at in society? In an ironic twist, Lizzo is getting sued by her former backup dancers for fat shaming them. Lord, how fat were they? At 10.30, I've been telling you for more than a year that the Pac-12 will soon be irrelevant in major college football, and we have more signs pointing in that direction. At 10.15, Josh Gancy of the Sunday Times in London explains how Saudi Arabia's big spending in sports may be less about sports washing than people realize. And coming up in seconds, Longhorn football begins fall practice earlier today. So we take a look at some of the most interesting storylines. I am your host, Trey Elling. You can follow me on Twitter at CourtesyWave and do the same for ESPN Austin at 1027 ESPN. Longhorn fans and college football fans rejoice. This is the week that we take a major step in getting closer to the actual start of the 2023 regular season. That is because fall practices are getting going across the country. For the Texas Longhorns, Steve Sarkeesian, his coaches, his players. That first practice was actually this afternoon. They took the practice field at 3 o'clock. It's obviously long over now, but it's a great day. If you love this sport because you know that teams are starting to prepare by going through the motions and eventually putting in those week one game plans as they hope to make some noise in conference, if not on the national scene. And I think Texas... With all the confidence that they've been speaking with throughout the offseason, has every right to be in that spot right now. To be confident, that is. Because the roster looks good, even though they lose some key players from last season's team. There's a lot working for them right now. And it would be great, and I say this selfishly as a Longhorn fan, to make one final statement in this conference, in our final year in the Big 12. But just like with every year, there are questions, things that you hope we have some semblance semblance of an answer to by the time the games begin to matter. By the way, that first game for Texas, here in Austin at DKR against Rice, you might assume because it's Rice in the first game of the season, In early September, considering how hot it's going to be, that that's maybe a 7 o'clock kick. You hope it's a 7 o'clock kick? No, sorry. You don't get that good fortune. 2.30 kickoff on September 2nd, so you may want to be practicing outside more often than not if you're Steve Sarkeesian and company over the course of the next month because that first game is literally a month from today. It's August 2nd. That game is September 2nd. But what are the questions for Texas Longhorn football? Heading into this 2023 season, some things that we've been talking about all along. And it starts, of course, with Quinn Ewers. We saw a guy who looked like a drastically different player in the Longhorns bowl game loss to Washington in the Alamo Bowl, but there were reasons for optimism in that game. And I think Quinn Ewers is reason for optimism number one. And that's because he looked like he was in much better shape even in the month since their final regular season game, or a little bit less than a month, before that bowl game. And he looked pretty darn good too. Seemed to keep that up throughout the offseason. There's been some pictures surfacing of him 
not only keeping those pounds off, but looking like he's in really good shape. Rave reviews through spring ball. And that trend has continued through the summer where not only has he remained laser focused on being in top physical shape and being ready to go for this upcoming season, but also taking more of a vocal leadership role. A willingness to call out his teammates when he sees them slacking off at times and rallying the team together if they need to go through a few more reps during the coachless summer workouts. And this is a guy who is more of a lead-by-example type, but if you're at that position and thought of as a leader, you do need to know when to speak up. And it sounds like Quinn is beginning to get a handle on that. He also has a a great group of pass catchers around him now. Some of these guys were here last year, but it's just even more stacked now this year too. A.D. Mitchell coming in from Georgia. The true freshman, Jonte Cook. Getting Jordan Whittington back. It cannot be expressed enough just how big that was. Whether he's a possession guy, which he can be that, but he also possesses the ability to break big plays too. Well, remember his highlights from that state championship game his final year in high school. Then Xavier Worthy has less pressure to be the guy this year because there are so many other dudes around him. Perhaps that allows him to just focusing on being that big play threat and a guy who has a nasty streak about him too. Jatavian Sanders, of course, set a record for Texas tight ends last year. So Quinn has seemingly... Countless options when he drops back to pass. And I think that the flip side of that, flip side of the pass attack, is the run game. And I think that's question number two for this offense right now. What's going to happen at running back? You lose Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson, the former of whom ends up getting selected eighth overall by the Atlanta Falcons. Roshan Goes to the Chicago Bears. Forget if that was in the third or fourth round, but he is a Chicago Bear now, and everybody expects him to be a top-notch professional. Those are a couple of big losses right there in terms of talent, but also locker room leadership too. But thinking back to that Alamo Bowl loss, and really whenever he was given an opportunity during the 2022 season, If Jonathan Brooks is healthy and ready to go, which he was not for spring ball, I understand that, but if he is back to 100% now, I fully believe that he is capable of handling the load in the running back room. He can be as close a thing as you have to an every down back if you're the Texas Longhorns. It may surprise some people, but he has... Game-breaking ability. He can take one to the house on just about any play. And despite the fact that they're a little bit less experienced in the running back room this year, minus Bijan and Roshan, the fact that the offensive line looks like it's ready to take that next step forward is going to be a huge boon in helping to establish that dominant rushing attack. Because as much love as Steve Sarkeesian gets for throwing the football around, and he's a great play caller as it pertains to his pass offense, let's not forget that he has had a 1,000-yard rusher pretty much every year that he's called plays in college football. That's no accident. That is deliberate. On the defensive side of the ball, 
You did lose some big pieces on that defensive line, but it looks like you are stacked depth-wise enough that there shouldn't be that big of a drop-off. If anything, maybe you are going to get a little bit more out of your edge rushers this year. But the biggest question, in my opinion, on defense is, who is replacing DeMarvion Overshone? And maybe it is a by-committee deal right now. And fortunately for the Longhorns, they do have a guy who probably should have been the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year last year, returning for that one more season in Jalen Ford. Much like Quinn Ewers, a guy who leads more by example than getting in dudes' faces. But you watch the work that he's put in with this program and how that manifested last year. I expect more big things out of Jalen Ford this year. He's going to be a huge assistant to whoever it is that's standing next to him. Play to play. Anthony Hill may have a major say-so in that, especially on some of those obvious passing downs where they do allow him maybe occasionally to go sidelines to sideline, but to do what DeMarvion did so well over the last few years at linebacker, even uh, maybe being a little bit smaller than what you would expect at linebacker, and that shoot gaps to get after the quarterback, to provide that pressure that either ends up in a sack, an incomplete pass, or better yet, maybe even a turnover. So there are a couple of questions for Texas Longhorn football. This conversation is going to continue for the next month, of course, but we are up on the commercial break. So coming up next, we're going to talk a little Saudi Arabia, the money they're spending on sports, and just how much of that is sports washing with Josh Glancy. He is the features editor of the Sunday Times of London. Just wrote a really interesting article in the free press about that. That's coming up next. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Josh Glancy is the features editor for the Sunday Times in London, and he has just written his first piece for the Free Press, which discusses Saudi Arabia, the amount that they've gotten into sports over the last few years, and the idea of sports washing. And I wanted to have a conversation about that because I think he is providing a unique perspective on all of this. Josh, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm all right, Trey. How are you? I'm doing really well. So what first got you interested enough in the idea of sports washing and what Saudi Arabia is doing around the world of sports to want to write an article about it? Well, I was sent to the World Cup in Doha, in Qatar, uh, last November to report for the Sunday Times, which was a pretty nice gig, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't there to write about the football. I was there to write about all the circus around the football it was a world cup unlike any other we'd seen it had huge controversies around human rights around gay rights around the rights of women in qatar it attracted a lot of controversy a lot of the british media were apoplectic really that the world cup had even been given to qatar which they felt didn't really have much of tradition in soccer and and so there was a lot to write about and the migrant workers who did all the hard work making all the stadiums and that sort of thing uh, in some pretty difficult conditions. That whole issue of what was going on with that World Cup, why did the World Cup end up in Qatar? And not just because they managed to game the system of FIFA and how they award the World Cups, but because actually, why did they want the World Cup? What did it mean to them? Uh, and I, I felt when I was there that we in the West had misread the situation. I went there thinking about this idea of sports washing, which is this idea that, well, they get up to lots of nasty things in the Gulf. They don't treat their migrant workers well. They don't treat women well. They don't treat gays well, et cetera. 
but if they have nice shiny baubles like the World Cup, then we look the other way. And that's what really sports washing boils down to. But when I got there and talking to Qataris and, and really digging into it properly, I realized that that is a small part of the picture, really. Really, this whole sports strategy is part of a much broader geopolitical, almost tectonic uh, shift in the, the the power of the world, really, in, the, in what these countries are looking to achieve. They're trying to secure their futures. And they, they have a really, it's part of a much broader strategy. And that goes for Qatar and the same goes for Saudi Arabia. So that's how I got interested in it. And then obviously in the last few months, particularly the last few weeks, we've seen this just barrage of spending from the Saudis and their public investment fund on golf and on soccer. And they are just spending money like no one's ever really seen before in sport. So obviously it felt like a good time to to try and explain to the world why I think that's going on. Yeah, obviously soccer or football, as it's called around the rest of the world, as you point out in this article, uh, obviously that one makes sense just because of how many people around the globe pay attention to that sport. The golf example is a little bit more interesting to me, though, because I realize that golf does have a global appeal, but it feels like there are other sports that have much more significant value uh, than what uh, the LI or what the Live Golf Tour did and what the PGA Tour is about to have for the Saudis is the reason why they went after golf versus something like American football or baseball or basketball, which they do have small stakes in some of those things, just the ease of entry for the Saudis in doing so with this public investment fund? Well, I think there's a number of things going on. And part of it, I tried to make this point in the piece, is Saudi Arabia is a country run by extremely rich men who are not really accountable to any democratic voting. And, you know, I don't know about you, Trey, but if you gave me a trillion dollars and told me to do what I want with it, I'd probably buy up sports <laughs> teams and, and and buy into sports that I like. They like golf. Ah. Yasser Al-Ramayan, who is the uh, director of the, PI, uh, the PIF, which owns Live Golf, he likes golf. He likes playing golf. Um, Mohammed bin Salman MBS, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, um, likes golf and, 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 and golf is a sport for rich guys. It's a sport of the boardroom. It's a sport that gets you noticed by corporate America. I think it was buying live golf that led me to write this article because it got America interested up till then soccer, you know, not quite the thing in America so much. So, you know, part of this is just about what, what would, what do rich men want and what do they like a golf, but, but also a lot of this investment is about tourism and they want to make Saudi Arabia a tourism hub for the whole Middle East. They want to make Saudi Arabia a hub for the whole world, the kind of center of Afro, where Asia, Africa and Europe all meet. And so they're building golf courses. They've got a Jack Nicholas golf course they're building outside Riyadh. There's golf courses going up all over Saudi Arabia. So by buying effectively the sport of golf, which is basically what they've done, they can then start hosting tournaments on these courses and create attention and bring in tourist dollars as well so there's quite a lot of different things going on but i think um golf really made sense to them in a way that something like baseball just just wouldn't and it was an interesting note also you just mentioned Dak, jack nicholas he is helping to build something like 15 courses in saudi arabia and i feel like he was one of those critical voices on the pga side of things when guys were jumping ship from the PGA Tour to go play live golf. In some instances, it was providing them gener generational wealth in the process. And in that moment, as as uh, there was a lot of criticism being levied at these guys, 
My response was, look, I understand where you're coming from there, but it's also easy for you to say that you would turn down hundreds of millions of dollars to go play a sport that you would come nowhere near making that much money with the uh, current professional league that you are a part of with the PGA Tour. Right. I, I think any of us who criticize these players have to be probably pretty honest about what the decisions we would make for ourselves. You, you know, so, yeah, I mean, if you were offered $100 million, as you say, that's generational wealth. Uh some of the guys going to play soccer there are in the twilight of their careers. Uh, and this is a bonus that they could never have expected and would never get anywhere else. Uh, but but there is some hypocrisy, right? And you've highlighted that. Jordan Henderson, for example, who was the captain of Liverpool Football Club, uh, is going to play in Saudi Arabia. He's taken a huge salary to do so. But he's also campaigned for gay rights and he's made that a part of his brand and he's worn the rainbow armband and... I think people who care about gay rights feel pretty let down in his decision because, okay, take the money, you know, be, be cynical and pragmatic about what that offers you, but then don't, don't then campaign and and make a, a a brand out of being a a good guy and campaigning for human rights that clearly Saudi Arabia aren't interested in. So I think it's the double standards that bothers people in some cases. People can change. I guess the question becomes, can oppressive regime regimes change? Have you seen a shift in mindset with regards to LBGTQ plus rights in countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia? Because they well, are at least trying to talk a better game in that regard. I certainly think there has been a bit of a shift in women's rights. I think that, you know, women are driving in Saudi Arabia, for example, the, 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 the Mohammed bin Salman's social contract that he's offered Saudis is pretty tight political repression. He's actually cracked down on expressions of subversiveness or opposition to the regime, but some social freedoms and some loosening of social activities. So they have music concerts now. They have sports events. Women can drive. There is a, the sense that the younger generation has more freedoms on the social side, but perhaps even fewer politically. And that's the Saudi social contract, they will, people I spoke to in Qatar, for example, over the World Cup will tell you, look, homosexuality was illegal in Britain until the 1960s. Like we're a conservative society. We're a patriarchal society. We're an Islamic society. Like give us some time. Like they'll probably never end up where we are today in Britain and America, but they may, they may move on these things. And what they say to me is, you know, by lecturing us, by hectoring us, you put us in a defensive crouch by telling us that you know better. You, the country that 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 ran an empire across the Middle East until not that long ago, uh, the country Britain and America, the countries that invaded Iraq, something that they all perceive as a war crime. Um, don't turn around and lecture us. Like, let us develop at our pace. That's their perspective. Do you believe that? Do you believe it when they say that uh, they are beginning to evolve on on things like that, or is that uh, a whole lot of lip service? Well, probably a bit of both. I mean, I think the role of the internet in creating a kind of global millennial Gen Z class has a mm. huge impact on people's social expectations. And I think, you know, it does just liberalize by virtue of connectivity. So I think that is happening. And I think people like MBS know that that's happening and they're seeking to adjust to it. Um, but I think we have to be realistic about the fact that these are conservative Islamic societies and they're going to run things the way they want. You know, I noticed this in Qatar when they they banned Budweiser from selling beer at the stadiums during games, which they initially were going to allow. 
And it was kind of a statement of of saying, you know what, we're going to run this World Cup our way. And that involves not having beer at the game and tough bananas. Like we, we have power in the world now and we have a role and we're going to do things our way. So, you know, they may move, but I, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to ever come to a more Western approach on some of these issues because they're not Western. So how much of this activity do you think is actually sports washing versus them trying to either stay competitive with their cohorts in the Middle East or maybe just find a way to turn the insane amount of money that they have built up, the insane amount of wealth, into even more wealth? So I think that's a really good question. That's what I tried to get out in the article. I do think sports washing is real, and there is probably a bit of that going on. But I think the real feeling I had from talking to people was that there is there is a real what I call hydrocarbon anxiety. So if you imagine your Saudi or your Qatar, you've won the biggest lottery ticket in history. I mean, a $10 trillion lottery ticket. You discovered this stuff under the ground 60, 70 years ago, and it has made you unimaginably wealthy from really from nothing. But you know it can't last forever. I think they see as a vehicle for securing their future, for diversifying their economies, for building a proper tourist industry, and for giving their brands more than just oil and beheadings, which is, I think, how a lot of people in Britain certainly would have viewed Saudi Arabia 10, 20 years ago. So in that sense, maybe there is some sports watching going on, but there's way more to it than that. He is Josh Glancy, features editor for the Sunday Times in London. Just wrote an excellent piece for the Free Press titled, Why is Saudi Arabia Spending Billions on Western Sports? That has been the focal point of our conversation today. Josh, thank you so much for the time, man. Really appreciate it. Yes, Trey. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we have the latest batch of evidence that shows the Pac-12 will soon be irrelevant in major college football. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. I've tried to tell you, I have tried to tell you, going back more than a year, I have tried to tell you people that the Pac-12 is dying a slow death. I guess it depends on your definition of a slow death, but a lot of folks have chosen to keep their heads in the sand since going back more than a year when George Klyovkov, who is the commissioner of the Pac-12, began to seek out that next media rights deal. This after it was learned that USC and UCLA would be bolting the Pac-12 for the Big Ten at some indeterminate time, at least at that time. I think not long after it was learned that they would be members of the Big Ten for the 2024-25 athletics calendar year. But George Klayovkov spoke confidently about getting that next TV deal done and making sure that it was competitive. Maybe not so much with the SEC and Big Ten. That did seem far-fetched, and that's understandable. But in keeping with the ACCs and the Big 12s of the world. Well, here we are, more than a year later. And the Pac-12 has finally given us some details on what that next media rights partnership may consist of. And unfortunately, it's only led to more speculation that the Pac-12 is close to becoming irrelevant as it pertains to major college football. 
Yesterday, reports started surfacing that the Pac-12 held a meeting with the conference's presidents and chancellors with a potential media rights model. Let's remember, their media days were a week and a half ago. They Friday news dumped their media days, and that was probably for the best because other than USC and maybe Oregon to a lesser degree, like Dion wasn't at Pac-12 media day this year. So the interest was down significantly as a result. So they Friday news dumped their media day. That's never a good sign. And neither is them admitting that the best deal that they're possibly going to get right now is via a primarily subscription-based Apple streaming deal. So a majority of their most important games would have to be accessed by fans through Apple TV. Now, we are in the era of streaming, so I don't think that's the end of the world. And a lot of people do have Apple. But the fact that you're willing to gamble on your games not appearing anywhere, at least primarily, on over-the-air network television is a colossal gamble. And by the way, it's not like Apple is breaking the bank to ensure that they have the first option to broadcast your games either. For the longest time, we've heard from Pac-12 people who insist that their deal would be somewhere in the ballpark of what the Big 12 is getting for its member institutions through an ESPN and Fox deal, which is a reminder that is somewhere a little bit north of $30 million for each of its schools at the start of this deal, which begins in 2025. And by the way, kudos to Brett Yormark for including in this contract that for every member that is added on the football side of things, they will get that equal number too. So that contract actually goes up for each member. I don't know if it's up to a certain point. Like hopefully they're not thinking of adding, I don't know, 26 members. Maybe uh, some sort of caveat in the contract that keeps that from happening. But if you're adding, say, a Colorado or some of these other schools that may make themselves available via the the Pac-12, they have that guaranteed $30 million plus coming to them as well. Brilliant move by Brett Yormark. But going back a year, the Pac-12 assured us that our deal is going to be better than that's. Better than $30 million per year? Yeah, no question. We're the Pac-12. They're just a big 12. They're not even going to have Texas and Oklahoma anymore. Fast forward three to six months. Then all of a sudden that narrative became, well, you look, I mean, it's going to be around where the Big 12 is. It's probably going to be more than the Big 12, but we'll definitely be right around that $30 million per school number per year. And we have to fast forward to a little bit earlier this summer. And it was, look, it's going to be in the ballpark. It may not be exactly $30 million. I mean, come on. That's ridiculous to think that that's even viable in this day and age. But it's going to be in the ballpark somewhere. Maybe within 3 to $4 million per school. Maybe just under that $30 million mark. Well, we now have a better idea of what they're actually having to settle on with this Apple TV subscription-based streaming deal. 
that was proposed to conference presidents and chancellors yesterday by George Klyovkov, who somehow still has a job. Apple is going to be paying, as it stands right now, a little bit less than $20 million per school. Now, there are escalators, according to these reports, and I'm going off of the report filed by Pete Thamel, that these escalators could increase things to get that final annual number back into the ballpark of what the Big 12 is going to be paying its schools, regardless of how well they perform during the year. The Big 12 schools is that year. Pac-12 has to perform well for those escalators to kick in, and probably as if not more importantly, they've got to maximize eyeballs on TV sets on game day. So that's one more item pointing towards the Pac-12's demise as a major college football power. And as a result of this, you would have to imagine, I'm assuming as a result, but I guess maybe it's on its own. But after hearing this pitch, now we're getting different reports from places like Yahoo Sports, Dan Wetzel of Yahoo Sports has the next one that I'm about to talk about. The Big Ten, as of earlier today, has started preliminary talks to add Oregon, Washington, Cal, and Stanford to their conference. I guarantee you, I don't know if Phil Knight was in on that call, but I guarantee you as soon as Oregon's president and or chancellor Talk to Phil Knight about what the Pac-12 finally presented to them. Phil Knight was incensed. And I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon has been working the back channels to find the best landing spot for them all along. I think you could argue that outside of USC, they are the most valuable asset that the Pac-12 has. And so they could either choose to be the big dog in a smaller conference or go someplace else where the other big boys are playing to compete on the highest level, while also being paid like a big dog too, by the way. But Dan Wetzel says the Big Ten is considering what to possibly do here. I don't know if they have the same clause in their next TV deal that ensures that whatever members are brought into the Big Ten, they will get the same amount as the current members or if everybody is affected by the additional school or schools, whatever that turns out to be. But even if the latter is the case, they'll still be getting way more than what they would be getting paid from the Pac-12. I mean, Big Ten schools, I think, reaped somewhere just below $60 million per school last year, which would triple what the Pac-12 is going to be paying starting next year. So even if it's a little bit less than $60 million, you're still making out way better than staying in that lame duck conference who is being led by a guy who's clearly in over his head. Oregon obviously makes sense for the Big Ten. Washington makes sense too, but I hear people mentioning those two schools in the same breath. I don't necessarily believe that they belong in the same breath. And I know this isn't going out on a flimsy limb here, but Washington, for as good as they've been in football and some of the other sports at, a time, at the time, they don't have a rabid following in the great Northwest like you might expect. It's just because 
I hate to say this as an arrogant Texan, but they just don't care quite as much about football up there. They just don't. And a lot of the passion and enthusiasm that does go into football, I think is directed more towards the professional team than anything else. Washington has a little bit of that commuter school feel about them. Think of them like the University of Houston, Great Northwest. But it would still be a positive ad for the Big Ten. I do question whether Stanford and Cal would be good ads for the Big Ten, but I also understanding I also understand wanting to corner that California market too, though. And if you add those two schools to USC and UCLA to go along with Oregon, there's not a whole lot else left, especially now that San Diego State recommitted itself to the Mountain West Conference. They spurned the Pac-12 for the Mountain West Conference. Good job, Pac-12. Really in a good position right now if teams are spurning you for the Mountain West Conference. But I feel like if the Big Ten were to at least temporarily go to 20 schools, because they will be at 16 once USC and UCLA come in, attrition has to come somewhere. I don't see any of these conferences wanting to operate at 20 teams. That just doesn't make sense to me. Or maybe you figure out a way to share the love and donate a handful of schools to one of these other conferences, either the ACC or Big 12. But some of these schools may find themselves on the chopping block when it's all said and done. Maryland, perhaps. Rutgers. hate to say Indiana, but is Indiana? Would they be in consideration there? Probably not. But you have to consider all the options right now. I think Maryland and Rutgers would squarely be on the chopping block if such a decision had to be made. All right, one more segment coming up. It's Where Are We At In Society? And oh my goodness, Lizzo is getting sued by her former backup dancers for that shaming them? That's ironic. It's the Night Talker with Trey Ellen. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elling. Final segment of tonight's show means it's time for... Where are we at in society today? That's right. It is your nightly look at stories that show we as a people are headed in the wrong direction. Very occasionally, I will give you a story that provides a sense of optimism that has us all saying to ourselves, hey, maybe we as a people are getting something right. Perhaps all is not lost. But sadly, tonight is not that night. We begin tonight's Where Are We At in Society with Lizzo. Everybody's favorite, I don't know what you call her. She makes pop music. Apparently she plays the flute while dancing around, scantily clad. Which may sound appealing until you realize that Lizzo is, I don't know, 250 pounds. She's a thick 250 I'd say it's pretty proportional, but it is still a solid 250. At least that's my estimate. That's my carnival estimate right now. But perhaps shame on me for fat shaming Lizzo. For calling out the fact that she carries excessive weight all while insisting on wearing very little and covering it up. And look, if you, you be you. You want to carry that extra weight? 
That's terrible. Your bones, your joints, probably your cardiovascular health too. The risk for type 2 diabetes. But if you want to be you, that's fine. But have enough self-awareness to cover up a little bit more than somebody who is in tip-top shape. But that's not Lizzo's game. So good for her for having the confidence to do that. Here's where it gets a little bit hypocritical, though, because Lizzo has defended herself in the last few years against people who are essentially doing what I'm doing, which is calling her fat. Well, embarrassingly for her, embarrassingly for her, and ironically for her, too, three of Lizzo's backup dancers have just accused the pop star of sexual harassment and body shaming in a 44-page lawsuit that was just filed. The plaintiff's attorney said that the dancers' experiences seem to go against everything that Lizzo stands for publicly. One dancer said after she gained weight, Lizzo and their choreographer repeatedly questioned whether she was, quote, struggling with something as she seemed less committed to her role on the dance cast. And according to the docs, in professional dance, a dancer's weight gain is often seen as a dancer getting lazy or getting worse as a performer. So saying this in the professional dance world is widely known as a thinly veiled concern about weight gain. The dancer was actually fired Shortly after that, too. So Lizzo, and by the way, these dancers were not skinny girls. I don't know if they matched Lizzo's heft necessarily, but they're in the same ballpark. And I'm not talking Pac-12 media rights deal ballpark with the Big 12. I think it's very, it's much closer to the same ballpark than where the Pac-12 is versus the Big 12 media rights deal wise. If only the accusations ended at fat shaming. But apparently these three dancers, by the way, their names are out there in public, so I don't need to uh, worry about protecting them. Ariana Davis, Crystal Williams, and Noel Rodriguez also alleged that they were pressured by Lizzo into touching nude performers while at a club in Amsterdam to go along with the weight shaming. They claimed in this complaint that at a club called Bananan Bar, where attendees can interact with the nude performers, quote, Lizzo began inviting cast members to take turns touching the nude performers, catching sex toys launched from the performers' V-holes, and eating bananas protruding from... The performers, oh my goodness, I'm not going to read the rest of that. Lizzo, who is 35, by the way, for anybody wondering, doesn't look a day over 250 pounds, then allegedly began pressuring one of these dancers to touch the chest of one of the nude performers, despite the dancer, quote, expressing her desire not to touch the performer. That same night, Lizzo allegedly badgered the security guard to get on the club's stage until he submitted to her demands. 
And this is the security guard getting on stage and not Lizzo, by the way, because that would just probably drive everybody out of the club. When he got on the stage, his pants were pulled down, exposing his butt, with Lizzo then begin beginning to yell, take it off, while a club performer hit the security guard with whips. Apparently, Lizzo was really letting everybody around her have it on tour. I guess at some point, she shamed those who were engaged in premarital sex, all while sharing her own sexual proclivities with her husband and with herself, too, if you get my drift. So this is a big, fat, ugly situation for Lizzo right now. And even though I'm not in the gossip-mongering business necessarily, you know that this segment loves pointing out the hypocrisy of others. Can't help myself with Lizzo. Not after what she has supposedly stood for for these last few years, to be engaging in these same sorts of things that appall her is, well, just as I said, hypocritical. We move on now from Lizzo to the Friendly Skies. I've said for a long time, because you hear stories of people who join the Mile High Club on a commercial flight, which means not only are there a bunch of complete strangers right outside the door, assuming that you're having to do this in the airplane bathroom, but you are essentially having sex in a porta pot in the sky. If you choose to engage in the Mile High Club in one of those commercial airline toilets. I know there are positions that you can get in to make that feasible, but it also seems like an uncomfortable brand of sex too, by the way. Like way more work than what it's worth to check that box. To check that sexual bucket list box. If there's an exception to joining the Mile High Club, it probably has to do with you being stupid rich and having your own plane where you can literally lock some part of the airplane to then do the deed with your person. And apparently, that is exactly what an Australian social media influencer has decided to do in joining the Mile High Club. Caitlin Rose is her name. And she has exposed through her, I believe it's a TikTok channel, that it is possible to pay an airline to get up in the skies and join the Mile High Club. She showed off a service during a recent visit to Las Vegas, providing her TikTok followers with a behind-the-scenes look at her, quote, perfect date night with her boyfriend. They paid $1,300 for 45 minutes aboard a twin-engine Cessna 414 provided by Love Cloud. This is a brilliant, brilliant business plan, by the way. I would imagine that they are booked up until, I don't know, November In the clip, 
Caitlin shows the bed that's set up in the back of the plane between a few seats, as well as herself setting up a camera. She's also on OnlyFans, so I guess her influencer appeal is probably more about OnlyFans than it is TikTok, because I don't think you can show porn on TikTok. Then again, maybe you can. When's the last time you clicked on Arch when you see that in the trending topics on Twitter? Because something has happened with Arch Manning that day, only to scroll like three or four stories down to see straight up porn happening. It's happened to me recently. Thank goodness my kids weren't over my shoulder. That would have been a tough one to explain away. But I don't know if TikTok has that same thing going on. So the porn is happening on OnlyFans. The clip that was shown on TikTok, which at last count had around 8 million views, ends with a couple receiving their Mile High Club certification from the pilot. And that's what made it official. In various video clips, Caitlin did take her viewers through various parts of the date night that don't actually involve joining the Mile High Club with a text overlay that read, quote, we found a plane for the Mile High Deed. It's called the Love Cloud. We captured our memories. It is the perfect date night. Again, I'm going to do that for yourself and for your other person too. Yes, there are services offering that now. Probably even here in Austin. It is a popular place for people to go after all. That is it for another edition of the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at 10. In the meantime, have yourselves a great rest of the night and sweet dreams. It's the Night Talker with Trey Elliott.